continue today to study the advent, which means arrival of Jesus Christ. Both the most improbable birth and the most important birth in human history. As Jeff said, we're going to be focusing on verses 10 through 13, but because this prologue, as it's called from John 1, is so beautiful and just compelling, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 13, though we're going to focus on verses 10 through 13. So if you have a Bible, follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And here's our section for today. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would help us to be receptive. Lord, we recognize the preaching of your word is something that we experience on a weekly basis, Lord, but it's something we need. We need you to speak to us in our situations, in our troubles, with our burdens, Lord. I pray that you would do just that this morning, despite my weakness. I pray, Lord, that you would just help your word to burst, burst into life for all of us here this morning. That only happens by your spirit, and we pray that that would happen with us and for us today, Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen. The advent, or the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ is an event that is bathed, defined, awash in irony. He, Jesus, was the creator of all things, and yet he became one of his creatures. Unexpected. Ironic. He was the eternal one who entered time. Ironic. He was the one who had no beginning, was uncreated, and yet was born as a baby in Bethlehem. This one had all power and yet became a vulnerable baby. He's the king of the universe and yet laid in a feeding trough. The object of angelic worship was ignored by men. This event, this Advent, the advent of Jesus Christ is bathed in irony. 
And in verses 10 through 13 of John chapter 1 this morning, John invites us to consider another irony about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The irony that he wants us to consider this morning is his complete and thorough rejection. Jesus, God the Son, was rejected by his people. Jesus, God the Son, was rejected by mankind in general. And Jesus, God the Son, was rejected by the Father. We could say, it's not too much to say, that he came so he might be rejected. And you say, why is that? Jesus departed heaven to be rejected on earth so that when we depart earth, we might be accepted in heaven. His world, his, his life was defined in many ways by rejection. He was ignored, he was betrayed, he was abandoned, he was beaten, mocked, scorned, derided, and ultimately crucified. He was rejected. So why? Not for no purpose, not to be an example, not so that we can look and say, isn't that amazing? Why? So that we might be accepted. See, the ground for our acceptance is his rejection. We see Jesus rejected, and we say, wow, isn't that amazing? He is the one. Because he's been rejected, we can now be accepted. We can be welcomed. We can be protected. We can be encouraged. We can be forgiven. We can be loved. We can be adopted. Because our Lord was rejected. Jesus departed heaven to be rejected on earth so that when we depart earth, we might be accepted in heaven. Another way to say it is this. He was rejected so that we could be cherished. That's the irony of this passage. That's the irony of verses 10 through 13. And we see this this morning in two movements. First, a double rejection. Jesus endured a double rejection in verses 10 and 11. The first rejection is chronicled in verse 10. He was in the world. Remember, he's the creator, and John reminds us of that. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, when John uses the word world here, he's not talking about the trees and the shrubs and the sparrows and the foxes of the field and all those, his creation. He's talking about mankind. When he was in the world, the world of mankind, the world of men, even though all of mankind was made through him, this world did not know him. Jesus, the almighty creator, came to the world he created and his creatures, made in his image and likeness, didn't recognize him. By him all things were created, Colossians tells us, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Not only did he create all things, he created all things so that all things might be pointed and directed toward him. And yet, when he came, all things, including mankind, did not take that rightful disposition to adore the creator. Instead, they rejected the creator. They responded to the creator with indifference. The world he created did not recognize him, did not respect him, did not accept him, even though everything and everyone should have taken notice because everything and everyone bears the marks of his craftsmanship and care. We as 
Men and women are made in the likeness of God. Mankind did not recognize his creator. And mankind at large took no notice of his arrival. The world shrouded in sin and death did not notice that he had the light of the life of men and that he walked among them and they did not see him. What was true then is true now. The world still does not recognize this Savior. Nothing really has changed. We see this anytime people bemoan the darkness of our world and say, where is God? What's he doing? As they see the forces of darkness wreaking havoc in our world, they say, why doesn't God come and do something about all of these problems? The irony is this. He did. The light of the world did come and do something about the darkness. But he didn't do what anybody expected. See, what people want are happy, problem-free lives. Or what they want is validation to do what they want, when they want, how they want, where they want. Or maybe they just want the confidence to look inside themselves and find purpose and hope. But Jesus didn't come for any of those things. Instead, he came to defeat sin and death once and for all. Mankind, in general, does not really think sin is a problem, but yet that is our greatest problem. He came because mankind was dead in his trespasses and sins. Jesus came to deal with that problem, which is the most important problem, but it's not what anybody expected. You know why? Because apart from Jesus, we don't feel dead in our sins. We don't. And if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you remember that before you became a Christian. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you are, according to the scriptures, spiritually dead. Now, you might take offense at that, and I don't mean to be offensive. I just mean to tell you the truth. I'm not saying, hey, look at me in comparison to you and me. I'm here, you're there. No, what I'm saying is, if you are not a follower of Jesus, you are spiritually dead. Only he can give spiritual life. And so what you need to th- recognize is that you are dead apart from him. And you might say, well, that's funny because I don't feel dead. I woke up this morning, had a cup of coffee, ate some breakfast. Dead people don't do that. And I would say, you're right. You are physically alive, but spiritually dead. There are two different kinds of living. It's like this. In my backyard, I have a tree that's very much alive. That tree stands solitary, rooted into the ground, with its leaves spread out to the heavens, standing there for all the world to see, I am alive and I am doing what a tree does, which is provide home and shelter for way too many loud birds and just stand there. The tree, is it alive? Yes. Now, would it seem as if the tree is alive 
when compared to the puppy that my wife and I brought home on Friday. Now this puppy, eight weeks old, she's alive, but she doesn't, her sign of life is not like the tree, right? She shows that she's alive by yipping, by chewing up socks so far, by running around and going to the bathroom in the hallway. That's what she does. We know she's alive by those things. Now, if you take the puppy and the tree and compare them, you're going to say, compared to the puppy, the tree is not really very alive. It looks more dead. Similarly, if you're not following Jesus, you are physically alive, and yet you're spiritually dead. Because when you compare the two, you recognize that you don't have any... That, this is something you see once you become a follower of Jesus. But just like the tree and the puppy are both alive, the signs of life with the puppy are more obvious. And the signs of life, if you trust Jesus, the signs of spiritual life become clear to you after the fact. Just talk to someone who you know is a Christian and ask them, what was it like for you when you went from being dead in your trespasses and sins, being spiritually dead, to being spiritually alive. What changed? Ask that question. Jesus came to awaken and to give life to the spiritually dead. Jesus came to give life and hope to those who had no life and no hope. Jesus came to deal with the dreadful consequences of sin and death. And yet, his creation, mankind, rejected the creator. That's the first rejection we see. The second one is even more surprising. The second one is one we see, and John describes in verse 11. He came to his own. Another way to render that would be, he came home, and his own people did not receive him. His own, who are his own? His own are the nation of Israel. So the, here's the picture. He came home, and everybody who was at his house, who should have welcomed him in, who should have said, praise the Lord, you're here, who should have celebrated and sung and had a party, instead they sent him away. They did not receive him. Now that's ironic, because they knew and were expecting somebody to come. There was a promise in Genesis of the great serpent crusher that they saw in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God says, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan, and the woman, and you, <coughs> and between your offspring and her offspring, he, being Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The nation of Israel had been looking forward to this great serpent crusher, and when he shows up, they did not receive him. That wasn't the only place in the Old Testament that promised the coming of this new anointed one. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, at the last time he ever addressed the nation of Israel, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. And they don't. They refuse to listen. They refuse to receive him. The nation also sung the words of Isaiah chapter 9. In anticipation of the son that would be born, they sang, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And yet, when the Son was born, called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and he came to his own, they did not receive him. He was rejected. He was rejected by the world. He was rejected by his people. The Jews rejected and opposed their Jewish Messiah. But he endured this double rejection in order to grant a singular blessing. He endured this double rejection in order to grant a singular blessing. And then we see that singular blessing in verses 12 and 13. And by singular blessing, I don't just mean unique. Unique is a watered-down word. It's a word that we use for all kinds of things that aren't really unique. Singular means that there is only one place that we can get this blessing that is described here in verse 12. Only one place, and it's here. We can receive this blessing because of our rejected king. And what is that blessing? Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, so many in the world did not, his people did not, but to all who do. And how do you receive him? John tells us, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. We use a one-word label to describe this. We say adoption. He gave all who received Jesus the right to become children of God. So do you see the blessing Jesus offers? Does he offer forgiveness of sins? Yes. Does he give eternal life? Absolutely. Does he give us hope in this life? No question. Does he give us purpose in this life? For sure. Does he give us righteousness before God? Yeah. But also, he offers something else. He offers adoption as sons and daughters. See the irony? Jesus, who is rejected by his own family, and on the cross, even his own father... Why? So that we might receive the singular blessing of being adopted into his family. Notice the language. John says, he gave them the right to become children of God. The right means legal right. In other words, when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you believe him about who he is and what he's done and the hope he offers, when you confess your sins and put your trust in him, God gives you a new legal standing, a new unimpeachable, irreversible legal standing. You're not just forgiven, you're family. You're adopted. See, it's not just that our God made a contract and he signed it and said, well, you know, because you believed in Jesus, I'm legally obligated to do what I said I would do, so... Okay, you're forgiven. I mean, you don't deserve it. You're pretty rotten. I see in your heart, and man, I'm glad nobody else does. That's not what he says, is it? Those 
those, as we see in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, any parent here, if you're a parent, you know this. Any parent here knows what it's like to have your heart knit together with your children. It just happens. It just happens. You recognize when you hold that little one in your arms for the first time that in a way, everything changes. Your happiness, your joy, your well-being is tied to your child's happiness, joy, and well-being. Ask any parent. And you also know in that moment, I knew this when I hold, held each of my kids, I knew in that moment I would do anything for them. Anything. I would sacrifice anything for them. And that's just me. A failable, fallible, flawed father who may live to be 70 or 80. And then my kids will be without me. But what we see here is a promise of a different and better adoption. A father who does not die and cannot change his mind. See, it's one thing to celebrate God's love for us, and we should. He loves us, and that is true, but it's another thing to recognize that his love comes with commitment. He doesn't just say, I love you. He shows that he loves us by binding himself to us as our Father. And there is no power and no grounds for appeal or repeal of this legal arrangement. It's impossible. It can't be done. So when you trust Jesus, what you need to recognize is this is not just a one-sided thing where you say, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to trust Jesus and, you know, things might get a little bit better for me or whatever. No, what we have when we trust Jesus, when we receive Jesus, God stands on the other side and says, now you are my son or my daughter, never ever to be thrown out, never to be disowned, always you are mine. You're adopted into my family. This reality is true for all of us as Christians. Every Christian is adopted. My wife and I, we have four kids that we adore. We're committed to each one of them. I would gladly, both of us would gladly sacrifice anything for them. They bring us unbounded joy and happiness. We love their company. We love to laugh with them. We pray for them constantly. We love them to death. And each one of the four are adopted. When, I, when we held them in our arms for the first time, we knew that their hearts were knit to ours and had, biology had nothing to do with it. Their cause became our cause. And I remember each moment, I remember with each child, I held them and said, I'm your dad. You're stuck with me from now on. And that was true. But there was also a day with each one of the four of them that we went to the courthouse. And this love that we shared with our child became ensconced legally. 
I don't remember much about these momentous court appointments, but one thing I do remember is when the judge looked at us and said something like, Mr. and Mrs. Richardson, this is now your son or daughter. We have one little girl. They are now officially in your family. This cannot change. He or she or they have your name. They will always be your son or daughter in the eyes of the law. And from that moment on, though they did not come from our bodies, they were and are our children legally. No one else could challenge these adoptions. They are our kids both now and forever. And we are grateful. That's, though, a dim shadow of the adoption that we have as believers with God the Father. There is no possibility of reversal. He is yours legally, and you are His legally. It's not as if God takes a, d- decides, depending on whether or not you wake up with a good attitude or whether you crack the Bible or not, He doesn't wake up and decide if you're going to be His son or daughter on this day based on how you act. He wakes up. No, He doesn't go to sleep. Sorry. We wake up. We wake up, and we are now, if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're a Christian, you are His son. You are His daughter both now and forevermore, that cannot be repealed. There is no one who can bring a challenge. You are his son or daughter, not just for today, not just for tomorrow, not just for next week or next year, but eternally. And I think as Christians, we think about this too infrequently. God is our Father. And this concept is not in the Old Testament. It's something new. The, I mean, there's hints of it, surely, but it's something new with the advent or arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and is rejected so that we might not just be accepted, but so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We're family. Do you know the difference between a family member and acquaintance? An acquaintance, got to be on your best behavior. Family member, it's like, you're stuck with me. I'm family, and that's who I am. That's who you are to me. And you know what? That's never going to change. And that's the same reality with us as believers today. Upstairs in this building, if you walk through that lobby, go up those stairs, and go down the hall, you'll find that there's a a door with my name on it, and that's my study. That's where I study. I have a ton of books in there, and I know, I know when my children come to the door. Every other person who comes to the door, I hear this. My kids, the door flies open, bangs against the other wall, and they're like, hey, Dad. I mean, they don't wonder if they have access to me, right? They just bust in. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Because where I am, I want them to be, if at all possible. I'm their dad. The same is true for us. 
and even more with God the Father. See, I think there's, there's too many of us as believers in Jesus who think that God just tolerates them, tolerates you. Like, he's kind of, he's a little mad at you. Um, and you know, he sort of frowns when he thinks about you because pff, you had a bad Thursday or maybe you had a bad month or year. That's not the case, though. He's your father. He has bound himself to you. He smiles when he thinks of you, which is all the time. He works, he promises, because he's your father, he promises to work for you in ways that he will not work for other people. He promises to give you all the blessings he can. He promises to do what's best for you. Why? Because you are his son. You are his daughter. And I think this is important for us, all of us, but especially if you've had a hard family life. There are those of you who have parents that have not loved you the way that they ought to have. Maybe they are harsh or demanding. There are others of you who don't know your parents. And it's tempting to look at our parents and those flawed people, they all are flawed, and map that on with God. And that's not the way to do it. Instead, you're, this is what we need to recognize, friends. God, your father, is not like your failed parents. He has bound himself to you, and that will never change. Even if you're a parent, you're thinking, man, I could have been a much better parent. That's true forever. And you know what? One of the things that helps me as a dad is, even though I do my best, I know that my Father in heaven, he's the one I'm ultimately looking to point my kids to so that they can recognize, yes, I'm their father both now and, now and as long as I draw breath and into heaven, but there is a Father in heaven who is much better than me. There is a Father in heaven who will not, who cannot let them down. There is a Father in heaven who has bound himself to them because they have chosen to receive Jesus Christ and believe in his name. Now you might say, this is great, but I don't feel like he's my father. That's one of the trouble with feelings. They're unreliable. Feelings rarely steer us in the right direction. We have to steer our feelings. Let's just be clear about that. If we just let our feelings take the wheel, we're going to crash. But... If we inform our feelings, and this is what we try to do on Sunday morning. One of our goals on Sunday morning for the hour and a half we're together is this. What we want to do is inform ourselves about what the Bible says in song, in prayer, in preaching, in communion, in everything, so that our minds might be informed so that our feelings can be affected. It's super easy to whip up emotion by lighting some candles, Having just the right music, watching highly produced videos, I could tell emotional stories, we could maybe try to be technologically impressive, 
I could dress like a hipster and have a much more conversational tone and you would leave feeling good. But the problem with our feelings is not only will they steer us in the wrong direction, but our feelings change. You could feel good, but it doesn't do you any good. What we want to do as believers is be informed with rock-solid truth, the kind of truth that we can stand on both today and on that day when we pass from this life to the next. What we need to be informed of is not whether we feel like, we don't, need, we don't need to sit there and say, well, do I feel like God is my Father? No, I need to look at verse 12 and let verse 12 tell me how I should think. Verse 12 says this, but to all who receive Him, there's no exceptions there, all, which means any, and which means if you have received Him, being Jesus Christ, and how do you receive Him? Who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's what you need to have in your brain and put in your heart so that your feelings follow along. Whether you feel it or not, you, Christian, have been adopted by God. And you receive this singular blessing. You, because he has been rejected, have not just been accepted. You've been adopted. You can just bust in on God whenever you want. You can just say, hey. You don't have to measure your words. You don't have to wonder what he thinks. You don't have to think, does he really love me? No, you're adopted. You're his son. You're his daughter. You have a legal standing now with God that is irreversible and unchangeable. And that, friends, is a singular blessing that you can get nowhere else. Now remember what we said our text was about. The world and his people did not know him. He was rejected. John also talks later in this book about another kind of rejection. When Jesus was affixed to the cross, he did more than just suffer and die, though he did that. He suffered and died and was rejected by his Father. The Father heaped scorn upon the Son so that you and I, you and I might have love and acceptance heaped upon us so that we might be adopted into his family. God was eternally father to Jesus, his son, but yet on that cross, he poured out wrath so that we might be eternally sons and daughters of the Most High God, our Father. And that will never change. Friends, <laughs> there are many blessings in this life, but there is no blessing like this. God is your Father if Jesus is your Savior. He even goes on further in verse 13. He describes born again, being born again. He says, those who were born, verse 13, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of 
God. So, when you believe in his name and receive Jesus Christ, you become children of God. We become adopted by God our Father. And you think, well, that's all me, right? Well, actually, John tells us in verse 13, when that happens, we're born of the will of God. Here you think you're just receiving Jesus Christ and you're born again by the power of God who becomes your Father. Jesus was rejected so that we might be cherished. See, this is why the advent of Christ is bathed in such irony. Jesus, who deserved to be received by all, was rejected. Jesus, who deserved to be blessed by God, was rejected. Jesus, who deserved to be crowned king, was rejected. Jesus, who deserved to be awash in praise, was rejected. Why? So that you and I might have a different legal standing than we would otherwise. What? Sons and daughters of the Most High God. A Baptist preacher from the last century sums up the irony of the Advent so very well. He says, Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the Ancient of Days, who had become the Infant of Days. What deep descent and heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the Creator, born of the creature, woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. So that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. He was rejected so that we might be cherished. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't think you're here today on accident. What does it take? It just takes willingness to recognize that you need, you want to belong to someone. Jesus. You want to belong to his family. He, wel he willingly welcomes any who come to him and confess sin and ask for help and say, I can't do it anymore alone. And as you receive him, he welcomes you into a family. He welcomes you in as your father. And he will never send you away. In fact, he cannot. 
And that, friends, is a singular blessing that if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to experience. And Christians, I think it's worthwhile for us to remember, even though there are things in our lives that are disappointing, we have, you know, if you're like me, at the end of a year, I survey different things that I've gone through and I have disappointments and trials and hardships. And sometimes I can be more aware of what I don't have than what I do have. I think it's important for us to think about what we do have in Christ this year. What do we have? Family. What do we have? We have God as our Father. What do we have? We have a new legal standing. What do we have? A place forever. What do we have? We have the promise that though he, because he was rejected, now we are cherished, both now and forevermore. His Father, Christ's Father, has become our Father. Irony of ironies. What do you have? Christian, what do you have? You have Him. And He's the best. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, I ask that you would help us all, Lord. So often I'm aware of the things I don't have, Lord, and I pray you would just, I pray you would work a gratefulness inside me to recognize what I do have in you. God, thank you. Thank you for taking someone like me, unworthy, incapable, sinful, dirty, and welcoming me into your family because of the suffering and rejection of your son. And thank you, Lord, for all of us that we have that kind of hope. Amazing, Lord. This is a plan that none of us could have come up with. God the Son becomes a baby to be rejected and die and rise again so that any who receive him might become sons and daughters of the Most High God so that the Most High God, who is above all things, becomes not just master but father. That's not a plan. That's not a plan we would ever come up with ourselves. But we're grateful you did. And we pray. I pray, Lord, for those here who aren't following you. I pray that they would receive you and be welcomed into your family. And for those of us that are, I pray we would keep following you and be grateful for all we have. Because all we have has come to us from the Son and His rejection. And now we have a new place, a new family, a new hope, a new future. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And it's in the name of your Son whom you rejected so that you might accept us and adopt us. In your, his name we pray. Amen.